Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hall, as always. And today, it feels like an age since I've had just a one-on-one chat with Mike, uh, although Mike has been on the channel plenty, just lots of roundtables, which are always great. But it's nice to be back on and doing a Q&A with you, Mike. Uh, how's, it, I know you're dieting right now, so how's everything going? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, so the COVID uh, thing is a lot of turmoil. Um, uh, so all the gyms are closed. So uh, Charlie and I ordered some. So he had, his wife had the uh, 45 pound uh, power tech blocks that can change dumbbells by 500 increments. So we've been kind of using those a little bit. We've been um, doing, uh, we have push up handles. So those are super useful. We can actually do skull crushers with them. Uh, and then uh, we're getting a just squat stands and a barbell weights and we're getting like a, a plate loaded pull down machine which is all going on my roof <laughs> so uh that'll be interesting and we're going to be training uh as well as we can uh which i think using the principles gonna be pretty well and we're sort of like eight weeks into a 20-week diet and so far so good so gonna keep going that's awesome i'm <laughs> actually a little bit uh, embarrassed to say how much thing how many things i've bought considering me and charlotte are nine floors up in a two-bedroom flat and i, yeah. I have a squat rack coming i have um, quite crap. a lot of bumper plates olympic bar yeah. coming at yeah. some point yeah. um but yeah it's it's crazy times I, I wonder well it's gonna have massive and i know you probably have thought a lot about this economic social effects apart from our obviously like us bodybuilding nuts mental effects it's going to be crazy uh, over the next well ages yeah so i wonder how long it's going to be i have no idea most Mm. people don't know um the next two weeks to four weeks will be very telling based on spread and getting an estimate of what the actual um infectious rate and also the deadliness of the disease is because we we don't have very very good data on that now um but if it's really really bad then this thing could last months as far as quarantining uh if it's really not that bad it could last weeks uh but either way it's uh, it's stinky does it i don't know if this is too personal question and let me um and tell me if it is well just don't answer it for uh (laughs) renaissance periodization i guess obviously you're a majorly online business. I wonder, is the implications like positive, negative, net neutral? Cause I guess you've. Uh, yeah, we don't, I don't think we know yet. Yeah. Um, people don't generally tend to do diets when they're scared of stuff. Um, they also don't tend to do diets when they're out at the gym. Um, you do have, as of this release, depending on when you release it, we almost certainly will have, uh, at home workouts, we had a female at home workout plan for forever. We're making, we just made the male one and it's going through editing. So there'll be a male at home workout plan. And I'm also planning myself on releasing something special uh, for cool. advanced folks at home. Um, and that'll almost certainly be free. But uh, so we definitely have products to help people through these times. But um, I don't know. And also, you know, um, fitness is a luxury. So when people, uh, are not in economically good times. They don't have a lot of money for luxury goods or as much and uh, luxury services. So, you know, depending on how long it takes the economy to recover from this, yeah, I think everyone's going to be taking a hit or, or most people anyway. So uh, certainly not a good time for RP, but maybe not as bad as it could be. Um, and maybe we have the opportunity to help some people. Yeah. Awesome. No, I think that's a good perspective to take. And yeah, it's weird to think what like kind of niche uh areas are doing very very well out of this like supermarkets make a killing these home like all of these home workout places amazon are just crushing it right now. amazon's crushing it which is great (laughs) amazon's uh an instant a world institution at this point so and at least i guess there are also like there's jobs that they need filling so so they uh, from what i understand uh, in the first week of this epidemic in the united states they had one hundred thousand job openings i heard that just like completely insane yeah um, that a lot of people worked day and night, I'm sure at Amazon over the past couple of weeks, cause they have to bump up their ability to deliver like crazy and not to stray off too, too far off a general fitness topic, but I say, you know, well, you speculated that some of the consequences from this are going to be long-term. I think, uh, one of the very positive long-term consequences is it's going to elevate online and delivery services 
over in-person store services more, which I think is better for the economy as a whole. And uh, it's just really awesome, you know. Uh, Amazon Prime. Do you guys have Amazon Prime yeah. in the UK? Yeah, that's great. So, like, some places don't yet. And um, Amazon Prime basically, like, you can get almost everything delivered, including groceries, and most things, or, like many things, come on the same day, which is just baffling. It's like, ridiculous. It's the peak of Western civilization. It's whatever you want, you just that's it. it. Just shows up. So I think that Amazon and, and other such companies getting a big boost is a great thing. Uh, certainly would have been greater if this virus never happened. But uh, there's always a silver lining to a lot of things. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. So yeah, I won't um, draw out too long discussing something that is probably on everyone's minds, but we'll get to the questions. We'll get to the juicy stuff. Let's do it. There's definitely some that relate to this topic, um, but there's some that are new and fresh as well. So Darko Stankovic has asked, what would you do differently nutritionally and training wise if you could go back to your peak non-special sports supplements days? Almost everything. I knew very little back then, uh, so it's not a question I can tentatively answer. I would employ modern periodization, which I didn't know. I would employ reps and reserve, which I didn't know. I would employ ascending sets uh, through a mesocycle, which I didn't know. Um, I would employ more, more full range of motion training, which I was just starting to figure out. I would employ different repetition ranges. I would do more pauses. Um, I would do a more uh, of an emphasis on the stimulus to fatigue ratio, utilizing the mind-muscle connection and so on and so forth. I would auto-regulate. I would manage fatigue. I didn't deload back then. I um, didn't know what a deload was. Uh, I was never taught it. So uh, almost everything. So I think for me, uh, you know, I, I, I think this, this question is getting at something very good, which is like, what's your, what are your recommendations for naturals? Is essentially the question. Um, but, uh, it, you know, what I've learned from then till now has much more to do with me being much more involved in the research and reading and theorizing development of hypertrophy ideas than it has with me being in the world of special sports supplements. Uh, I know remarkably little about that actually. Um, and I have folks like Robert Chavez who know a lot and they let me know what to do. Um, and I also think, and I've said this before many times, training changes maybe 5% difference between supplemented and not. And I've written extensively as to why and how I think that is the case. So I think a lot of people uh, like to caveat things like, well, for natural trainees, and almost all of that can be explained as a factor of uh, training age. Um, and it's really, you know, uh, it's a very, very minute differences that apply anyway. So I think the same advice, almost identically the same advice I would give to my, uh, natural self, I would give to my not natural self shortly thereafter, like three months after starting special core supplements, I would come back then and be like the same shit, the same shit. So just knowing more stuff. Fantastic. Cool. So, uh, Yerson, Gutrix Miranda has asked, Dr. That's Mike, a lot of names. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Mike, I have seen your Instagram leg training posts and I'm impressed by how much depth you can achieve. As far as I know, that depends on your ankle and hip flexibility. Any advice for folks who aren't that flexible, who want to increase their range of motion? Yeah, I have specifically two pieces of advice. One, I think technical alterations can impress you with how much flexibility you really have. I don't actually have very flexible hips or ankles. Charlie, uh, who does the same range of motion I do, has been hurt before because his ankles are so inflexible. He'd probably fail a whole lot of those like mobility tests. Um, like a pistol squat. Yeah, there's absolutely out of the question. Um, so I think that uh, with us, it's we know how to position our feet and where and how to position our hips and where to get the most range of motion. So the first one is technique is a huge factor. And second of all, um, practice. So you go a certain depth now safely and you can achieve high degrees of muscle activation. Great. Try to go a little deeper, a millimeter or two deeper. Just at pause at the bottom and really get that deep stretch. And over months and years, you will be able to go deeper and deeper and deeper. When I used to squat to full, full range of motion, I used to literally just be just below parallel. And when I used to bent row with a, a, a tight lower back, not a rounded lower back, um, I would touch the, um, uh, the weight would go just below my knees and come back up to touch my tummy. 
like that's how little bend I had. I had like a maybe like like a, like a forty five degree bend. And since then, I've been able to get it to an almost ninety degree bend through just practice, practice, practice. And I think there are some exercises that are very conducive to that. So stiff-legged deadlifts, especially with slightly lighter loads, can be done incredibly productively with very, very deep angles. And you slowly work, and all of a sudden you have more mobility. And when you train your calves, make sure that you're training them relatively frequently, two to four times a week, and really stretch the bottom every single time for a full second. And that will become you'll become more flexible. And also do that in all your squats, leg presses, lunges, everything. The more you push the range of motion safely, but a little bit outside of your comfort zone or what you're previously used to, over time, you get deeper and deeper and deeper. Fantastic. Yeah, I think your point of technique and also the point of picking picking a appropriate load are two things that a lot of people, if they just got those right, like they're using too much weight or they're not placing feet or arms in a good position, they'd automatically yeah. get more I'm range glad you brought up the too much weight. Um, that's your point, not mine. And it's a very correct point. And I think it's a it's one that for sure bears mention because I think some people think they're not mobile enough and it's really like, you could go lower. They're like, yeah, but then I can't get up. Like, it's because you're weak, not immobile, right? I actually, so, so what I'll say, I, this debate for myself and a few other folks in the industry was over years ago, but we hash it for shits and giggles. It's not really a debate. Um, I don't find the term mobility very productive um, because I think flexibility is what people are talking about. Mobility is actually an intersection of two terms, flexibility and strength. So if someone is mobile, that means they are both flexible and strong through all the ranges of motion. So like a six-year-old girl can be very flexible, but you put her in the splits and she can't get out by herself. She has to pull herself up. A gymnast is mobile. They're just as flexible, if not more so, but can rise out of the splits if you give them a slippery surface. So I think a lot of people think they don't have the mobility, but look at a certain load, you don't have that mobility because strength is integrated. Right? Like people say, well, I squat 200 kilos just below parallel, but I don't have the hip mobility to squat it lower. Like, no, yes, you don't have the hip mobility. That's true. But you do have the hip flexibility. You just don't have the strength. Uh, to maintain your position or get out of it. So what if you don't squat 200 kilos, but you squat 150? And they're like, wow, I have hip mobility to do this. Like, yep, you sure do. So a lot of times it is really just you more, most people have the flexibility and or can have it if they just rearrange the way they position their body. Um, and then it's up to just getting stronger in those range of motions. So I think Steve bring up a good point. Because some people say like, well, I can't bend over like this. Like, yeah, not with 100 kilos, you can't. But with 60, you can, and I get, but then I have to use 60 kilos. Well, it looks like you're only strong enough to use 60 kilos for a full range of motion. And there's no real argument to that because then, you know, look, if you want to bend over less and use more weight, that's an arbitrary and probably erroneous decision you're making anyway, right? Like if you said you wanted to be able to do a full squat, it's going to have to happen with 100 kilos, not 200. They're like, God damn it. All right, well, now you get stronger from there. And look, when you build your quads up to squat 200 kilos again, but from a deep squat, they're going to be fucking enormous and your joints are going to be super healthy. So it's all win-win. Think of it this way. Like now you have to use less weight to get the same effect. It's great. Yeah. And using your own terms, the stimulus to fatigue ratio just suddenly increases for that movement. You can grow even more. Uh, So that's only like pluses. So always a good thing. I think a good kind of test I've always had for clients and I put it out there on social media is like if you're getting more range of motion in your deload week than your other weeks probably because you're using such a little load and you can get the actual range you're meant to be getting that's great you know it's funny because during deload week especially in the early part fatigue actually tends to reduce flexibility so um, if you can get more range of motion during your deload week then you're really yeah. using too much weight because your fatigue should be worse. But if it's better, oh my God, then yeah. And it's always, uh, people say that I've seen numerous people and even I'm not like disparaging them. Like we've all been through this. I myself have been through this for sure. But so, you know, I have a sort of mobility issues and you know, you start seeing them warm up for the squat and the first you know, squat with a bar is deep. And then with a plate is less deep, two plates is less deep, three plates is half squats. And you're like, you don't actually have mobility issues. As a matter of fact, some people, are so tight, which is totally fine. Some tendons are just tight that they need hundreds of pounds to put them into the proper position. That makes sense. But if you're on the other end where you get less mobile as the weight goes up, nah, that's just you deciding not to go that low. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. And on that point, I know uh, 
the Renaissance Periodization podcast is now live. You've had plenty of episodes and you did a podcast yeah, on yeah. ego. So good little plug for that if people haven't cottoned on that that's out. Because I know it's it was launched this year. Is that right? Or has it been yeah, going yeah. On? yeah. Thanks for the shout out, Steve. Yeah, the ego one apparently went well. I had to be reminded. Somebody said, I watched your ego podcast. I was like, what the fuck? I did one of those. I had to be reminded what the hell it actually was. But yeah, it's basically like, you know, what is ego's place in the gym? And some people say, don't bring your ego to the gym. But you got to be proud of stuff if you want to be good at it and if you want to get better and take ownership. But what I basically said was you should be proud of stuff that matters, like full range of motion and great technique and the ability to push yourself hard. And then the strength comes from that. So don't be proud of how strong you are. Be proud of what it takes to get there, and then you'll have both. Awesome. Cool. So we're getting to Martin Nordmark Camurio, or Martin Camurio, yeah, who I RP think you know. Member. So he asked, and this was relating to Jan Fries's podcast that you did with him in terms of home training. So uh, I'll give uh, Jan a, f- a shout out. That's Max MPS Radio. Yep. So people check that out if they want that whole episode, because I'm not going to hopefully repeat anything that you guys have touched on. But sure, within sure. that podcast, um, you mentioned how um, people should get dumbbells and if kind of they, they shouldn't buy something like a resistance band, they should just use their body weight. And he was kind of questioning kind of why not if someone isn't wanting to invest in dumbbells why not purchase something like a resistance band that's a lot cheaper why rely rely on just body weight mm. so if you check my facebook i actually just made a um, oh, awesome. post about it. um a few folks apparently um one of them was gabrielle fondaro of rp um had took took some issue with some of the stuff i said on uh, both a technical level and a sort of socioeconomic level uh, or political level um, and Gabby actually called me just, uh, before we talked. So that was the motivation for my Facebook post. Uh, folks can go check that out. But, um, the, so let me explain on a sort of technical level what I meant. Uh, it is my personal belief having conducted literature on band training, first of all, uh, understanding hypertrophy training and also having uh, experimented greatly with band training myself tons of client experience with it. Uh, I don't think bands are that great. Um, I think that the biggest problem bands have is that in many cases, so stretch under tension or putting it another way, tension at long muscle lengths has been shown uniquely hypertrophic and you can feel this in your own training too. Um, it, it is completely obviated in most band movements. Most band movements provide with a force curve that peaks at contraction and not at uh, at the stretch. So I think that the stimulus to fatigue ratio of band training is just not that great. It's not that they're very fatiguing. It's just that they're very understimulative. And that's not the case for all band training. Um, but I think that the difference in potential long-term hypertrophy, especially for advanced folks, which is who I was speaking to on Jan's podcast, because almost all the viewers are advanced, um, uh, I think the difference between the hypertrophy magnitude dumbbells can deliver to you in a longer term setting, not just like something to hold you over for a week or two versus bands. I, I believe the difference is sizable enough to care about. So I think that dumbbells are better. And I think that bands are not free and they cost maybe roughly $20 American on average for a band set. Uh, and then, uh, dumbbells, it's difficult now because band dumbbells are probably a little bit more expensive for the next week or two until competition surges and they get cheap again. But roughly like at this time, I I Googled it today and it's like, you know, about $75 for an adjustable band set, um, which is, uh, you know, I was sorry, adjustable dumbbell set, which goes up to, uh, you know, I think like 40 or 50 pounds, and, uh, back down to basically two and a half pounds. So, um, to me, if you are going to pay money for something, anything, and it's 20 versus $75, I actually think that because you're an advanced hypertrophy trainee, it makes sense for you that if you're going to spend $20, you should spend the 75 and go for the dumbbells because it's that much better. Um, I think it's worth the money is what I mean. And I think, it, uh, to use the corollary, I don't think the 20 dollars for bands is worth the money um compared to the dumbbells um and another thing was sort of was brought up uh and i had to address had to i chose to address to on facebook is well you know i basically said like you know if you're not uh in a financial 
sort of neighborhood of buying dumbbells, I don't think you should be buying bands. You should just be doing at-home bodyweight workouts, calisthenics and sort of running around the block type of stuff. I do believe that. I do mean that. Um, I think that if, if someone looks at $75 for an investment purchase that will last them weeks or months of training, and they think, fuck, that's too much, but I can't honestly allocate that much money without needlessly constraining myself financially or making serious trade-offs, I think that means their financial position is so dire that allocating $20 to bands is equally as a poor trade-off of their, of their money. Because what they're going to be getting with bands is a slight enhancement in hypertrophy, but they're going to be out $20, which if $20 is a lot to you, $75 is, is, is uh, put it another way, if $75 is a lot, a lot to you, $20 is meaningful. It's a meaningful amount of money. And this isn't the case for everyone. A lot of general fitness folks who don't want to piss away like a bunch of money on dumbbells and just want the $20 bands to get a good workout, fucking, I think that's great. For them, I would also say, and again, advance the other position that maybe they don't need bands at all. And here's some at home workouts with no bands whatsoever push ups, pull ups, squats of various kinds, and, and, and movement uh, drills, uh, you know, at home gymnastics basically, or around the block that cost no money and actually compare fairly well to bands, right? So, so I think bands, if you're going to trade off like uh, price performance, I think like at home, so, so I think it's like, you know, if you do this sort of linear graph, I think like dumbbells are here, uh, at home is, or sorry, dumbbells are here, at home is here, because dumbbells outperform like crazy, right? But their prices, it takes them down, right? And then at home, the performance isn't that great, but the price is free. I actually do think that in many circumstances, not all, bands are right here, right? Because they don't really give you all that much, but they cost enough to, to matter. You know what I mean? Um, it's almost, it, it's kind of like, you know, um, if you're super not hungry and you're totally ready to go home and eat after being out with your friends for a while and you're going to be home in like 30 minutes, like, is it worth it for you? You know, and your friends are at a restaurant uh, and they're buying $20 meals. Is it worth it for you to buy like a $5 appetizer to snack on? You think like, I'll be home in like half an hour, right? You ever get hungry? Like you say, I'm not eating, but you get a little bit hungry towards like the end of a meal and you're like, ah, should I just order something quick? But like it's $5, right? But half an hour from now, you'll be eating anyway. And you're not even that hungry. So like, could you have gotten a $20 meal a couple hours ago if you're hungry? Yeah, that would have been a really great idea because it would have fed you completely and it would have been worth the money. But like in half an hour, you still get to go home and eat all your food for free that you already bought. So it's got that, that weird intermediate position that might not make sense. Now, I could be very well be wrong, uh, and there are lots of clever folks out there that figure out a lot of really good ways to use bands. I just don't personally see it with bands. I've tried it. Um, I've read the theory and the literature and stuff, and I've had lots of experience trying to train with bands, and I just fucking hate them. Um, I think they're awkward. I think that the idea of what you're going to be doing with them is a lot better than what actually happens. Uh, that's my personal view, and uh, I don't think it applies to everyone, but I... Um, uh, specifically, and I'll, last thing I'll say about this, um, if you consider yourself someone who's into advanced hypertrophy, you really, really, really give a shit about your goals, um, you're going to splurge $75 fucking dollars for dumbbells. Because if you can't afford $75 dumbbells, um, man, you know, like, I think maybe you shouldn't be buying $20 bands either. Uh, you can, and that may be a logical choice for you. But I would recommend taking some pause before doing that and thinking, is this really worth it? Because to me, I don't, I don't think it is. I think that's well said. And I, th I heard you say it on the podcast and I, uh, I didn't have the immediate like, oh, how can you say this or something? Holy and I can, see, I can see how people could if they didn't know you um, and know kind of what you're about. But what you explain there is exactly, and I credit to you for explaining it and like going there because um, that's exactly the response I was kind of expecting. In an unfortunate sense, I agree with you because I have no adjustable dumbbells. I bought some, it's been like <laughs> over 10 days, but I have all these bands because I had like pump up bands from like bodybuilding and sure. I, I bought some bands as like, a, I don't even know why I bought them. I haven't even, they were like- Nobody unwrapped. knows why they have bands, they just have them, right? <laughs> I had them, I think I was uh, experimenting with like reverse banded hack squats and things. And then I was like, oh, all I have are these bands. And I was just doing some leg training today. And I was like, to make anything heavy, I mean, the band at least- like puts a bit more resistance on me for some movements but like you said there they can be incredibly awkward um, and they do generally not have the best resistance profile when we are considering that which is unfortunate um, I actually found for hamstrings 
the good thing with the band was I could do Nordics assisted, which are terrible. <laughs> yes. um, they're actually an awful ex- well, a great exercise, but I haven't done them for years because they are so horrible to do. <laughs> yes. The assisted Nordics are great with a band, but then you think about what other hamstring stuff can we do with a band? Like stiff leg and deadlifts are out, completely opposite resistance profile. Leg curls are out, completely opposite resistance training profile. So it's kind of like, yeah, like bands are, look, if you have nothing and the bands are free, use the bands. If you've got nothing and you're really, really into fitness at the same time, very financially constrained, which I think is an odd place to be, then perhaps the bands make sense. But if you are into fitness relatively recreationally and not like pretty into it, not buying bands and not shitting away 20 or $30 is great because you could do so much with just your body weight uh, and with household items for the love of God. Um, you know, it's funny because gymnasts in many cases, certainly through history and even to the modern time, get as jacked as gymnasts get jacked with no bands and no fucking weights at all, just body weight exercises and one fucking pull-up bar, sometimes dip bars, right? But, you know, somehow they're in fucking unbelievable shape and, you know, are, are bands going to help you? I think they will help you. Are they worth the $20 or so if, if you are struggling to figure out if you want to pay 75 No, I don't think it's worth it. Cool. Perfect. Right. We'll get to the next question, which is on similar line, actually. Um, Andre Larson has asked, what is your opinion on the one-third of volume rule to maintain muscle when all you have is metabolite work uh, and kind of lower intensities or higher rep ranges? So one-third of your typical hypertrophy work or volume set-wise um, has been shown to maintain muscle, yeah. assuming you're eating at maintenance. So how yeah, does that apply I think to... Then it should be something like a half at least. Cool. Yeah. So I think uh, you're going to be going, taking sets very close to failure or to failure. And you're not going to let your volume drop below half of what it used to be when you were in the gym. Um, and your volume will be a third of roughly of what it is if you're at home, but because your volume at home should be higher than your volume in the gym because the intensity is going to come lower. And it's not just the intensity, it's that, the stimulus to fatigue ratio and the raw stimulus magnitude actually of all, a lot of the exercises is just lower. Um, so, you know, like there's something that, you know, yeah, you can do push-ups and even for really good volumes, but there's something they don't get you that are really good bench press setup will as far as direct pec uh, hypertrophy, uh, dumbbells and sort of upper back training, hamstring training, leg quad training, right? Like, five sets of ridiculous leg press followed by five sets of ridiculous heavy squat doesn't transfer set to set to even high rep leg stuff at home, like Bulgarian split squats and stuff. I I think a lot of that stuff, even if it falls uh, in the 20 to 30 rep range, which you'd be lucky if it did, because a lot of it falls honestly for stronger folks in the 30 to 50 rep range, Um, but especially in the 30 to 50 rep range, I think, and that's been demonstrated by research. There's a, there's a fall off there of uh, per unit raw stimulus magnitude. And I think that means you have to do more. Now I will, I will um, caveat this by saying if you're beginning an at home workout program, which many of us are right now, um, start at your normal MEV volumes and see how it feels. If you get an awesome pump and a crazy burn uh, and a real perception of like having really fatigued the local muscle that you're targeting, don't do any more. Wait to see how bad the soreness is, how you recover. But like, don't be surprised if you're, you know, doing bodyweight squats with a pause and you do three sets of them, you know, close to failure. And you're thinking, okay, this is supposed to disrupt my quads as much as three sets of squats in the 10 to 15 range close to failure. But I just don't feel as pumped or as tired. Then you're probably not. So maybe just do that for one session or do one or two more sets. And you find out you recovered in a day or two as opposed to three or four. And then once that's the case, I would highly recommend expanding frequency and slowly increasing volume over time. You may end up doing, you know, 10 sets of legs, so to speak, 10 sets of quads four times a week regularly in your at-home training program. 
and you think, man, this sucks. Like, yeah, that's why we go to gyms. You know, is it almost the purpose of a gym is two things. Uh, one, well, really just one. The gym is mostly just designed to present enough raw stimulus magnitude. Like that's why there's weights and machines to present enough raw stimulus magnitude to the target muscles because just doing without a gym doesn't work as well, right? Because if, if that was, you know, why don't runners go to the gym to run on a treadmill? Because they get the same raw stimulus magnitude of fucking outdoors, which is why runners are outside. It's also pretty and it's all this other stuff, right? Like there's no reason to go to the gym to run. You can, but there's no reason to do it in most cases. But weights are there for a reason. You know, you have to make up for it somehow, usually with, you know, because per session volume has its limits, especially in how much time you're going to take. It's systemic fatigue per session. You, can, you can't do 20 sets, one muscle group. It's usually just junk after that. Um, but I think that especially higher frequencies come in super handy for at-home training. Yeah, I'm really glad you touched on the auto-regulation, like just the that little principle or that kind of idea that you guys laid out in terms of like how fatigued, does the muscle actually feel fatigued? Do you feel any soreness? Do you feel, did you get a pump within the workout? It's just, just makes so much sense. And when you have that understanding, it's not just a case of, oh no, but it's, it's meant to be 10 sets because that should be enough. And it's like, what? Well, it depends a lot on a lot of various right? factors. For so sure. auto-regulation, when you have that, it just helps leaps and bounds. I Just an example for me, I was meant to be doing bent over rows, which are like, there's a big raw stimulus magnitude with a bent over row. I had my TRX and I was doing weighted vest, um, yes. inverted rows. And I was like, Something I've done the same there. number of sets. I had to add two sets to feel like I'd had a yep. similar stimulus. Yep. And then I added in some... Uh, flexion rows which are actually really great i don't know if you want to tell Super. our audience what flexion rows are because you can do yeah. those with light weights so it works yeah well. google it maybe because it's better described in video True. um but with, there's actually so there's a youtube video on the renaissance periodization channel it's uh scientific back and biceps training uh with uh joey zat mary from zat strength and he's a he's someone hey, steve you might want to have on the podcast at some point oh cool pro strong man really knows his stuff he came in and allowed me to torture him with a workout and um, we did flexion rows because Charlie and I have been doing them in our training and you basically have extended the range of motion of the row so much you cannot keep a uh, lower goddick lower back and you have to round your lower and mid back especially mid back at the bottom of the row you stretch and then as you row to yourself you also arch your back hard to do a hyper extension or well, it's not technically hyper uh, an extension at the top full extension of your chest up mind your hips don't move during this time so like if this is your head up here and here are your hips, you know, it basically you, you lock into place here and you do one of these and then one of these and then one of these and one of these and your arms hanging off here, go in concert with that. Um, fucks your mid back and lower back up like crazy. But someone asked actually on YouTube, why not just do, uh, you know, like 45 degree back raises to hit your lower back or a rack pulls or something, why mix it with a row? Because uh, you use such light weights for the flexion row because your lower back is such a limiting factor dynamically that it also allows you to use a weight light enough that you can do a pause row to the top and really crunch your lower back back. So it's shit, dog shit training for the lats, but it's amazing training for the rhomboids, for the mid and lower traps, and for the spinal erectors because those muscles, a lot of times, when you are training a row heavy enough for the lats, you can just barely touch it for a split second at the top. You can't really arch or retract much. Uh, there's a big strength discrepancy there. Nick uh, Tuminello is, is big on that idea that, like, look, if you want to hit your mid back and upper back, you might have to do even some partial range rowing where the weight is light enough that you can lock out, hold for a split second, and then release, lock out, hold for a split second, and then release, versus if you go through a full range of motion and get the stretch for the lats, like, what's going to stretch the lats and, and impose a lot of stimulus on them is a weight that you can't really get anything dynamic out of with all those other muscles. So I think the flexion row combined that it basically turns into a hybrid lower back movement and machine row for peak contraction. And it's great. Try them, hold every rep at the top for one second, pull it into your stomach, retract your shoulders and elbows for one second, and then slowly descend back and round and re-arch and repeat. It's going to fuck you up. The first time I ever did one, like it was like a month ago and I was like, ah, oh my God, like my entire back was pumped from top to bottom, side to side. I was like, this is crazy. So if you have any way to do vertical pulling or heavier rolling for the lats or some kind of extension for the lats, that combined with the flexion rows is really awesome, especially when you have limited weight. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. 
At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Yeah, I think it it was really great for me at the moment because I, I don't have anything heavy for like the raw seamless magnitude is really low. Yeah. So a lot of the movements are kind of isolation-y. So to get my erectors and everything involved, it's yeah. pretty difficult. So it kind of helped. Yeah, the stimulus to fatigue stuff and the detection of when you've had enough raw stimulus with using like, okay, am I pumped and does the muscle feel disrupted, um, especially, right? And the third one is uh, soreness, but that, that one you can't, you know, tell until later. Um, and so, okay, so, so te technically there's, there's more than three, but the three main ones are, uh, am I getting a mind-muscle connection? That, so they're applying different time scales, right? The mind-muscle connection is something you sense during the set. Uh, the pump is something that accrues over multiple sets. And then the disruption is something that can be detected both after multiple sets and hours, days, and so on after the workout. So there's three different time courses. So for example, if you're doing, and, and this is great, these two time courses are great. Um, fuck, man. You know what, Steve, while I'm on with you, sorry, I'm going to put this in my notes to do to like expand upon in a bigger post. Um, you got it. Everyone here is fine with that because they hopefully <laughs> are following you and will get this extra information as well. Yeah. Um, so the cool thing is like one set, even a few reps into a heavy weight, you can tell by a mind muscle connection if the muscle that you're targeting is really, really severely imposed upon and recruited. Like if someone's like, try this new way of fly, it's going to fuck up your chest and you're doing sets of five to 10 reps and you're like, ow, oh, my elbows. Oh, my biceps. They're like, what do you bet your chest? You're like, I honestly can't feel shit from my chest, man. Like you might as well stop the set and or finish the set and reevaluate your technique because it's, it's not imposing the forces where you want them. Then the next uh, thing is uh, later in the set, towards the end of a set, you have the perception of metabolite accumulation, which occurs worse works, you know, tension works great for heavier. This accumulation of metabolites works great for lighter work. So like, do you feel it in your lats may not be a question you can answer for a pull down set of 25 reps, but where the burn is, is going to answer that question between sets 23 and 25, right? Or sorry, reps 23 and 25. So if you get tension, great. If you don't, uh, maybe stop after a few reps and readjust, get tension where you want it. If the first set taken close to failure of an exercise causes the burn where you want it, great, you're well on your way. Like if your lats are literally burning, you're like, oh my God. Someone's like, is that hitting your lats? Of course it's fucking hitting my lats. It's burning the shit out of them. Clearly they're active and have too many metabolites. But if it's like just burning your forearms and your lats literally feel nothing at the end of a set, you got to wonder, right? But is it really hitting my lats? And then as you do more and more of these, let's say these pull downs, you're detecting the pump. Like if the pump is like really, really robust after a few sets, like you're, dude, you're well on your way. Shit is good. But if there's not really a pump where you want it, and maybe worse, there's a pump somewhere where you, you kind of don't, then, you know, maybe you're just not training what you think you're training. Imagine finishing uh, your fourth set of lap pull downs and like your back feels completely unpumped and your forearms are like dying. You're like, I feel like we're just training forearms at this point. And then of course there's muscle disruption which is, do you feel a strange perception that your muscles connection to its nervous system is right? Something's off, excitation, contraction, coupling is off. You know, like when someone's like, hey, like, hey, try brush your teeth after 10 sets of curls. And you're like, ooh, ooh, what the heck is going on? Like, or you try walk down a flight of stairs. And even if you have the yeah. strength, it's like wobbly. You're like, what the hell, something, something clearly happened to my quads. They're not fine, right? Which is like, if you have none of that after a training session, even if you never get bombs, you should at least get some of that, which is, is interesting because a lot of people say, you know, I've been like in the DOMS controversy for fucking 10 years now. You don't have to get DOMS to get great training. And if you have too much DOMS, it's definitely a bad thing. But I think all good training should have you uh, have a decline in performance locally in the muscle and some kind of perception of, of awkwardness or weakness in the target muscle. Yeah. Like if you can hop off the couch after you know, a set of uh, or a workout for quads and just be like, ta-da, and run up the stairs to greet your friends. Man, you, you, I don't know what you did, but it's probably just not really stimulated for your quads, right? Now, it doesn't mean you should be crippled, but I think it means you should be like, oh, holy shit, something's going on. You know, like something happened to my quads and they don't feel normal and they're super weak. Like, that's good. That means you tax them. So those three ways is how you can tell if, the stimulus is sufficient and you can, because there are three different time scales, literally in the set, between sets and at the end of what you think is the end of your workout, 
you can use those to guide how much volume you do transitioning from very different machines, different types of training, and even from training in the gym to training at home. So people say like, how many sets of pushups do I need to do? I do XYZ set of bench. Why do you do pushups? To target my chest. You let me know if you're feeling the pushups in your chest. If you're not, you should change the way you do pushups. Okay, got it. We should pick a different exercise. Got it. Next one is, hey, do you get a pump after a couple sets? No, keep going. Once you get a pump, does the muscle feel like it's been like fucking something happened to it, which is almost always one-to-one exactly the same thing, right? And they're like, yeah, my chest feels pretty, pretty dope. But like, I've only done six sets of pushups. I thought I was going to have to do eight. Stop. Because <laughs> you can always do more, but you can't do less yeah. after you've already done it. You know, like what is it? You can choose not to put salt in your soup, but you can't take the salt out of your yeah. soup. So um, that's it. Be easy. And then look, the next day, two days later, you can do pushups again. And now you're saying, oh, okay. Well, I guess I didn't really uh, get my, my chest as much as I thought. So now I can, you know, in six sets, I can do like seven or eight sets this time. So that kind of auto-regulation is great. But just to bring up one final point, since we're, I suppose, answering in depth uh, here, um, I think the idea that you just do a certain number of sets and just like whatever happens, happens, I think is fucking stupid. And first of all, for ignoring everything I just said, but also imagine that you had a set-to-set conversion from your leg curl that you were used to. Um, and you were doing like, uh, this is for people who, who look for how many sets of this should I do, which is a ridiculous question to ask. Um, you know, you've done, they closed down your gym and your last workout was eight sets of leg curls, lying leg curls. And you, it takes you like half a week to recover from that. Fine. You're used to it. Eight sets, 20, 30 rep range. You come home and you find out how Nordic curls work and you do eight sets of Nordic curls. Like, you may never walk again. <laughs> Just kidding. But like legit, the first time I ever figured out how to do proper stiff legged deadlift with an anterior pelvic tilt, so my hamstrings were pre-stretched. Um, I did three sets. I remember this work. I did three sets of 12 with 205 pounds. And I didn't walk properly for two weeks. My DOMS peaked four days after the workout. What the fuck? That's crazy clearly too much that's muscle injury at that point you ain't growing shit your body's like that's like i need you know i need to get bigger car accident you know what i mean like that that's too much so the set to set transition stuff like but if a person was being attentive during the fucking nordic curls what would they do after two sets they'd be like holy fuck dude my hamstrings feel not right the something's going on in there man they're pumped and they feel weird like you ever try to walk after three sets of Nordic curls and you're like, oh, 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 something's off. You try to curl your, uh, your heel into your, into your ass and you're like, nope, 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 nope. Like, why the fuck would you keep going? But some people are like, supposed to do eight. Yeah. I do eight. Like, sweet, fucking. Awesome. No, fantastic. I think that kind of heuristic adding upon what we already talked about is perfect. And I think that will guide a lot of people, not even like during this period of time at home, but during any period of time they're changing yeah. exercises or whatever they're doing in terms of changing rep ranges, it helps a lot. Yep, when advanced bodybuilders uh, who may not be the the perfect candidates to explain things, though they know them very well, because you know, your your verbosity and how well you actually know something are not always correlated uh, very well. I think when bodybuilders say, listen to your body, this is what they do on a technical level. Like, like, hey, should I do more bent rows? Well, is your back fucked up? No. Well, then you could probably do more. Like, or, you know, you should do more bent rows or should I do more bent rows? Like, is your back fucked up? Or like, yeah, I can't move. Like, man, you probably shouldn't do any more, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very well said because I think you going through that, it all sounds, maybe someone would listen to that and think it sounds overly complex or quite like difficult. But when you, like, if you put it into like layman terms or like you just yeah. did there, it, it's actually yeah. like, okay, actually, that's a yeah. no brainer. Do you feel the target muscle? Are you getting a pump or do you feel fucked up? Yeah. Like it's about as simple as you can make it. If you can yeah. check all three boxes, you're fucking done. There's no need to keep going. If you can't check any of the boxes, you probably have some more sets to do. Perfect. Cool. So we get to the, the next question, which was from Marcus Tyraja, I think. I had Steve, a lot you're of the best at reading last names ever. <laughs> has a lot of like um like dots above the A's and things, oh, which I fuck all that. always throw me off. <laughs> it's not the King's English, Steve. <laughs> uh so Marcus has asked, is that right that leg position doesn't matter when squatting? I've heard that a couple of times different places, high bar versus low bar is a similar stimulus to the quads and glutes. That can't be right. Of course it depends on what they mean when they say similar. He said, Mike, please tell me some. Non- this is nonsense. Or is the load the thing that makes up the difference? 
high bar feels more in the quads versus low bar, you can squat more weight? Yeah, so great, great question. Um, so first of all, let's just look at it uh, in terms of syntax. Um, you know, similar is like a term that means similar, uh, almost the same. It does not mean the same, right? Like, uh, you know, <laughs> an alien can come down and, and look at Brian Shaw and then look at a four-year-old child and be like, they are similar yeah. body structure. Be like, but they're not the same person. You know, you can't expect them to do the same things. So um, there's there's definitely that. So they are similar. Yeah, they are similar, but they are uh, pertinent enough. They're different enough for us to be concerned, especially folks who follow you, Steve, and the Revive Stronger community who are interested in a bit more than just similar, right? Um, folks watching this probably aren't interested in getting just a little bit of muscle, they're probably interested in milking out quite a bit of muscle and getting quite lean and looking quite good. So uh, the biggest difference between low bar and high bar, for example, we'll get to full position in just a second, is uh, actually low bar and high bar have, uh, so uh, low bar has very similar hypertrophic effects on your quads to high bar, I would say almost identical, if not identical. And it has better hypertrophic effects on your glutes, I would be willing to bet. The thing is that comes at the expense of a massive increase in fatigue, which you can get the same effect of hypertrophy on your quads from four sets of low bars you can high bar, but you'll be paying like one and a half times the fatigue cost or something. So the next question is what, what equates to fatigue? We well, could probably do about six sets of high bar and that would equate to the fatigue of four sets of low bar. I'm just spitballing here, but it's the illustrated concept. So, but what grows the quads more, six sets of high bar or four sets of low bar? Well, of course, six fucking sets of high bar or four and four are the same. So you end up getting way more bang for your buck. So yes, if you, if fatigue is not an issue to you, you can do either low bar or high bar, but at some point fatigue will be an issue to you for one of two reasons. One, you're just exceeding your MRV and you can't possibly afford any more fatigue, especially the axial and systemic fatigue that low bar squats cause so much it fucks you up for all of your other back training and all of your leg training. And if it's enough systemic fatigue for all of your training training, Right. And then secondly, you could use it as a trade-off of time in the gym. Uh, you know, if, if I'm going to be seeking maximum results uh, and I have a limited MRV, even if I'm not close to that MRV, shouldn't I fill it more with the stuff that's better bang for my buck? And the answer is like, well, why not do high bar squats that are more specific to your quads and you can jam other stuff in and get even better. So instead of doing five sets of both, you may be able to do five sets of high bar squats and then two sets of leg presses on top, get the same total fatigue, but way more quad stimulus total. So it's just, it's just worth it, right? It's just more worth it. It's, it's almost like I would say the, the easy analogy is this. Um, uh, you go to an expensive restaurant and a cheaper restaurant that just happens to be like really, like a really awesome food at the cheaper restaurant. And, you know, you say like, okay, this burrito combo with fries at this cheaper restaurant, uh, can you tell them how to diet? Yeah, I was all food analogies. Um, you know, this burrito combo with fries at the cheaper restaurant fills me up and is literally as good as the one at the more expensive restaurant. And you're like, great, so we can go to either? Like, no, dickhole, the expensive restaurant costs more. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's right, cost. So you've got to worry about that fatigue cost. Same answer for foot position, but there's a, a little bit of a quirk there. Foot position it really wildly depends on individual anatomy uh, and muscle structure and setup. Some people like to squat a little wider and they get a lot out of that for their quads. And some people, wide squats are basically just an adductor exercise. How do you know if you're one of those people? First, experiment gingerly and gently, experiment with different foot positions, slowly moving them around, seeing how things go. And then secondly, uh, it's a really good idea to just pay attention to exactly the stuff we talked about, uh, stimulus stuff and fatigue stuff. Look, if... Your adductors are, you know, super fried after three sets of wider stance squats, and you honestly can't say you have a pump in your quads. You can read as many studies as you want saying sumo squats are, and feet uh, close together squats are the same. Not for you, it's not. And studies are on averages and usually on beginners, so whatever, right? But if you try a wider stance squat and you actually just you don't sit back when you squat, you sit down with a wider stance because you have the flexibility. And because your structure benefits your knees, toes, and hips pointing out versus in, which is awkward for you around your lower back, you might find that when you sit deeper with a wider stance squat, your quads get super fucked up and your adductors are fine. Then somebody who tells you like, hey man, you should put your feet close together. Be like, that's nice, sir. Get the fuck out of my face, right? So it all comes down to the stimulus index, 
uh, the three-part one I just described and the fatigue index, particularly like what feels what for your joints and how systemically fatigued does something uh, beat you up, you know your own answer for your own training. So for you, it really just doesn't matter, low bar, high bar, any of it, fucking low bar, high bar, do the whole thing. But it, most people can pretty clearly tell at an intermediate level, like you have someone do a low bar squat and you're like, would that hit your quads well? They're like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like what else? Be like, that shit is hard as fuck, man. And I have to lift like 20% more to get my quads the same. Why the fuck would I do that? And they're like, well, you can lift more. Isn't that great? You're like, is it though? So you come back to that. Fantastic. Yeah. I think the stimulus to fatigue ratio and then these indices of kind of minimum effective volume, I guess they were yours yeah. and uh, James's. I've forgotten what you called it. Uh, ghetto MEV kind the, the of ghetto MEV. Yeah, there needs to be a better term. Yeah, hundred percent better. Is there a term for ghetto in the UK that you guys that you use? Uh, maybe uh, we use ghetto. So, or oh, I'm God saying ghetto. I feel really posh just saying it like that. You do. You do. Ghetto. Posh. We should just instead ghetto. of ghetto MEV, it should be posh MEV. Like, whoa, your butler <laughs> estimates your MEV for you. Oh dear. Um, so, Mike, I think. We're at your limit, right? You've got no more yep. time for any questions. Cool. So I want to say a massive thank you. As always, massive pleasure to do these Q&As. And I know people are going to be really, really happy to see that we've done another one of these. So thank you so much. As always, guys, check out Mike's stuff. We'll make sure everything's linked below. We'll get those uh, templates linked below as well for the bodyweight training because I think those will be super valuable. And we'll catch you all soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Steve. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.